Hello everyone, welcome back to our sermon series on the topic of rest in the Bible. Uh, I'm going to start by reading our Bible reading for this week, which is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who, who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared an oath on my, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, On the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest, for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also rest from their own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Well, as we get into today's sermon, I realize that it's kind of a big idea sermon and there are lots of different Bible passages that I'm gonna be referring to, you, uh, to today. So I'd encourage you maybe to grab a Bible or have one open on your phone so that you can follow along and maybe look in more depth in some of the passages that we talk about, because we're going to um, go through a number of different places as we look through this topic today. Well, as we start, I just want to think about something with you. One of the great descriptions of Australia that's ever been made uh, is that our nation is what we call the land of the long weekend. So we really do love the idea of a long weekend, don't we? And as a country, I think we have a tendency, more than some other cultures, to take a laid-back attitude to life, rather than focusing as much on getting things done. That's probably to do with the heat in Australia, or the fact that so many of us live near the beach. Now, that culture has changed a bit over the years, and it's probably not as strong as it used to be, but it's still basically true that Australians would like to take things easy, we like to enjoy life. You know, if every weekend was a long weekend, wouldn't that be great? So I think Australians tend to value rest, um, at least in theory. Now, as we've been thinking about rest in the last few weeks here, we've seen that God also values rest and that it's a very important theme in the Bible. So as we saw, the Bible begins with a story regarding the creation of the universe, which is God's work, and then God resting in it after it is finished. So in one sense, when we talk about the rest of God in the Bible, it's just another name for the fact that God has his presence in the world, resting on it. And we learn that this rest, God's rest and God's presence, is something that we were made to experience as the source of our life and the source of our peace and rest in the world and the basis for the work that we do in the way that God works as well. We are meant to know God, to work with him and to rest with him. But the Genesis story also shows us what we know from sad experience, that the rest of human beings is broken and that we are, for the most part, living outside an experience of the rest of God 
and his presence in the world. And so last week I discussed more of this idea of the curse of work on the world, which is the inability that we have as human beings to find rest. And that's a big problem. And the Bible spends a whole lot of time on it. Now, as I said yes, uh, last week, um, this curse of work problem has at least three facets. Uh, firstly, we learn that we can't rest because hard work is necessary just to live and survive in the creation in its current form. You know, life is just hard at a basic physical level. And that's a kind of problem that's really above our pay grade to uh, deal with in any meaningful way. But last week, we thought about another reason why rest is hard for us. It is more related to human activity. And this is the idea, the problem, that there are systems that uh, we have set up in our world which exclude people from rest, that make them work harder than is necessary in order to produce the things that we want or the things that we think that we want. And the most extreme example of that is, of course, the practice of slavery. When someone must work continuously without the ability to rest when they need to. Though, of course, those of us who might not be slaves in name, uh, maybe we do experience some of that reality throughout our working lives. There is perhaps a kind of soft slavery that pervades modern working experiences and the way that we have to work. And that's why one of the big commands in God's laws was the command for God's people to keep the Sabbath, to have a day each week to rest with God. Because God is determined, we hear in Exodus, that his people in their land will not be slaves and that they will be able to rest and to be with him in the way that they should be. And that's something that Jesus came to affirm and actually to extend into its full reality. Freedom to rest is the birthright of the children of God. And if that's denied them, it's a matter of justice that God wants to rectify. So these are problems outside ourselves and we experience them if we, if we can't rest, the problem of slavery. We may say very truly when we think about this topic, you know, well, I can't rest because life is so hard and because I'm under the pump at work, I have so many things that I need to do. If only that were taken away from me, those cares and responsibilities, then I would rest. Today, however, we're looking at the reality that that statement may simply not be true and that the problem of rest is also actually inside of us. It's in our hearts before God. When we're faced with the possibility of real rest, to the sense of entering into this rest, in the, of being in the presence of God, often there is something inside us that resists that or hesitates to enter into it. Something inside us doesn't want to rest because we know in our hearts that means confronting God. Now this is a theme then that comes up in a story that is remembered and repeated in a number of places throughout the Bible, including in our reading from Hebrews today. Hebrews chapter 4 is the third point in the biblical story or a series that returns to a particular story that begins in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers chapter 20. And that passage records a very significant story in the history of the Israelite nation known as the Waters of Meribah. And it could be described, this story, as a quarrel between God and his people. And so what happened then was that Moses had led the Israelites out of their slavery into e in Egypt and they were out in the desert. But after a while, people were getting uh, quite upset and frustrated with him because they were running out of water. They said, you know, we've left our home, we've left our family and all our possessions in Egypt and we've followed God. 
And now they thought, we don't even have the basic needs that we have met. So they got angry and they accused Moses of leading them nowhere and said, we would have been better off if we'd stayed in Egypt. And so Moses and his brother Aaron went to speak to God about this and they were told by God to speak to a rock in the wilderness and that a spring of water would flow out of that rock for people to drink. So Moses went back, but he was by this time a bit irritated with the people and he wanted to make a point. And so instead of just speaking to the rock, he smacked it with his staff like he was kind of doing a magic trick. And the water did still come, but, God, but he didn't honour God's instructions. And because he showed a lack of trust and reverence for what God was going to do, and that's later on why Moses was denied uh, the ability to enter into the promised land with his people. So this story then of what we call the waters of Meribah, which means the waters of quarrel, is a symbolic story, oh, I think, of a lack of trust in God's provision, in his presence with his people. It's a lack of willingness to go with God, to enter into what he promises and that he will give you what you need. People want to go back to slavery instead. They don't want to enter into God's rest with him. And this story later became the basis for one of the Psalms, Psalm 95, which is a song encouraging people to come and worship God and rest with him. And it says to them not to delay or resist like the Israelites did in the desert that time at Meribah. Because otherwise we may miss in the way that they did from entering into the rest of God. So it says, come now and worship. And then both of those Old Testament passages come up again in Hebrews, where we see it in our reading today. God, God the writer to Hebrews says, is still inviting people into his rest. And now through Jesus, a new way into his presence has come. So he says, don't be like those people back then, those people we sing about in that psalm, who disobeyed, who, resi who resisted and didn't enter into God's rest. He says, his rest still remains available today for those who are willing to come. And today is the day to enter into it. So this ancient story then, it's a word for us today. God's rest remains accessible. And if we miss it, or if we stay away from it, then we miss what God has to offer us. We remain in the desert, or we return to slavery. Hebrews encourages this then in verses 10 to 11 of our reading. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So what I want to think about then is more about what does it mean to actually enter into this rest of God? How we might do that and what are the obstacles? Um, and I think this can be approached by thinking about the topic that we might call contemplation. Now contemplation uh, is a word that describes broadly the practice of being with God. So in things like prayer or meditation or quiet silence, reflection on God's creation, a variety of other things that we do that is a practical resting practices in God's presence. Contemplation means becoming aware of God's direct presence with us, of who we are in him, rather than focusing on what we're doing or what we do for him or achieve. And contemplation has been a huge part of Christianity since the beginning. Unfortunately, we are living in a little slice of history where for a variety of reasons, many, many Christians and churches have never really encountered or understood this side of their faith. Many people think even that it is very dangerous and perhaps should be avoided. 
Um, we've often become then people of action only. And action is good, it's good to do things, but there is a proper balance to the Christian life. This is a real shame, I think, because I believe it's not possible to properly understand or really live out Christianity, to follow Jesus without some contemplative aspect to our faith. To do it is like trying to play tennis with you know, one hand tied behind your back, or to ride a bicycle that only has one wheel. It doesn't work, it's, or it's much harder than it needs to be. But many of us do try and struggle in that. So what I want to do today is show you that contemplation or this practice or this topic is a key to unlocking some of the teaching of Jesus around the ideas of experiencing God and his rest and his kingdom in the world. Um, and we'll do that by looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus's famous series of teaching on what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And you can find that in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Jesus talks here about the attitudes and behaviour of people who know God and who know his kingdom. Now, before that, it's always good to just, before we say that we talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, what do we mean? I think that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, when we hear him say that, it's a, it's a good reason to believe that what he is talking about in practice is what we could refer to as the rest of God and what I've talked about as God's rest it's the same thing. So God's spirit is present in the world everywhere. He sustains creation and is doing so now and he is working and resting all around us. And that presence of God is his rest and the kingdom of God is the work that he's doing all around us right now. Um, so God's kingdom is not something in the future, it's something now. The problem that we have is that we are not aware of this, not in sync or in harmony with it. There is something like this hidden dimension of reality that we can't perceive with our normal senses, that is the kingdom. But it is there and it is accessible by the grace of God. And I think that in one sense to enter into the kingdom of God or experiencing it is to enter into God's presence and his rest and to perceive the hidden dimension of God's spirit at work in the world. And that is what his rest actually is. Now there are flashes of this reality we see in the Bible and in the Gospels where people are able to see this kingdom for themselves the glory of God, which is normally hidden from us. God and his kingdom, we learn, are not a long way away. They are everywhere. And this is important because the, the kingdom of God, as Jesus teaches about it in the Sermon on the Mount, is essentially a different way of seeing and living in the world in the light of the presence of God. And so let's think about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, one of the things that people struggle with when they read this set of teachings is that the commands or guidelines that Jesus gives to his followers are not actually things that people can realistically do. <laughs> they are so absolute and so uncompromising that they, know, they leave, seem to leave no room for normal human life or weakness. And the sermon is often described as this is Jesus's moral teaching. But if that's so, it's not possible to be moral. For instance, according to the definition of murder that Jesus gives us in uh, Matthew 5, 21 to 26, everyone, is a murderer because he equates any negative attitude towards anyone as being the same thing as murdering them. How can anyone live up to that or be moral in that life? Well, we can't. What he is actually calling for is for human perfection. Jesus literally says at one point in the sermon, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. That's in chapter five, verse 48. And Christians have sometimes said, well, oh, that must mean that we're not actually supposed to try to do these things. We don't need to live this way now. Perhaps 
the Sermon on the Mount is for a future time, the future kingdom of God after the end of the world, perhaps. But I think that's inaccurate. What Jesus is saying to his followers here is that when they take up his invitation and enter into the rest of God, into experiencing and contemplating the rest, the presence of God, his rest, then the way they see the world, the way they see themselves and other people will change and a new way of living will open up before them. A way that leads to the perfection of God's presence. When they open their hearts and minds to God and rest in him and pray and listen to the spirit of God, they will be gradually set free from the way of the world that makes it impossible to live God's way. So what is important for Jesus in this sermon is not just our outer activity, our morality, or even our religion, but the depth of our inner life and rest before God. He, Jesus speaks about prayer in Matthew, 5, Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So let me just give you three examples of how this works out in the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So one is the way that Jesus teaches uh, uh, that entering the kingdom of God or God's rest allows freedom from concern for possessions or material needs. So in chapter 6, verse 25 to 27, he has a famous teaching about worry. He says, this is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more, far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Now, this is a hard one because it actually seems impossible to keep this rule, doesn't it? You can't stop worrying by being told or commanded not to worry, or even by being careful or making plans to be secure because all those things are actually still so fragile. But, he says... If our mind was to be solely focused on the present moment, on God's provision, minute to minute that keeps the universe going, his rest, if the love and presence of God that surrounds us is known to us, then the worry and concern for these other things will fade away. Like the birds and the flowers, we will just live with God and be happy with what he provides. And so that is a contemplative practice. And this is what we might call a Christian mindfulness, perhaps. And, of course, to be free from worry is to be able to rest and to accept the invitation to rest with God because there's no reason to hold on to other things that will make us feel secure. Things like the possessions and the food in Egypt that made God's people feel safe even though they were slaves there. That's the first example. And for another example, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, Do not judge others and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. And the standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So, judging other people and judging ourselves is fundamentally a restless activity. So judgment lies on the perception that there is a separation between us and God and between us and other people. And that in that separation, we need to be proven good in isolation from relationship with God. But Jesus would say, no, once you enter into God's rest, you see things as they really are in God's light, including yourself. 
and you will see the connection between everything in creation and everything in God. And in that light, the verdict on things, the judgment on them, is left to God, including the opportunity for his mercy to operate on weak and frail, frail people, including weak and frail people like us. There is no need for us to enter into judgment. And I think this is the pathway to genuine compassion for Christian people, to see people as God sees them, in his light, in his rest. But that is a contemplative practice, isn't it? It requires setting aside a restless mind that we have inherited, which is a judging mentality, and taking up the mind of Christ. So, to rest with God is also to rest from judgment and all the pain and recrimination that it brings. So that's our second example, and it's similar to the third example, which is Jesus' command to love your enemies. In chapter 5, verses 43 to 45, he says, You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. So God's kingdom... And his rest remains available for everyone. And he doesn't measure it out based on our goodness or our worth. The only thing that stops people from entering into his rest is our own hearts. And so if we experience this reality, the goodness of God and his rest, the sun and the rain that falls on us from the, from the sky, how can we still hate our enemies and want to destroy them? Because they're not our enemies anymore. God doesn't want that, and it's not how we feel when we're resting in him, when we rest from hate, when we rest from other things as well. Now, there, I think there are many other parts in the Sermon on the Mount that can only really be understood by expressing what it is like to have a contemplative, restful experience of God's presence in our lives. It changes how we think, how we feel, and how we see the world. So you can see Jesus is not inviting people in this sermon into an impossible moral system to live up to. What he is essentially doing is inviting them into a change of consciousness, a change of life. And this change is brought about by the prayerful, intentional attention to the presence of God and resting in that. And that's not something that's natural to us, and it's hard possibly to describe unless you've experienced something of it and know what it actually is. So this rest is a change of mind. It must be experienced from within to be understood because from the outside it appears to be foolish and ineffective. It's not a works, um, and it doesn't apparently get things done. But the reality is that it does get things done in God's way, according to his rest and his way of working. And so we really need to change our mind and choose to enter into his rest, as Hebrews chapter 4 says. And I think this is also what the Apostle Paul, for instance, is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 15. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. When we tell you those things, we do not use words from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It, it all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they cannot be themselves be evaluated by others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. So this then, this passage here, is the completion of this cycle from the waters of Meribah 
in Numbers chapter 20, through to Psalm 95, the call to worship, and ending with the promise of Jesus' rest in Hebrews chapter 4. The kingdom of God, God's rest, it actually remains in the world. It doesn't matter what, God, what people do, God is still at work among us. He is still resting with us. And our calling is to enter into his rest, to contemplate his presence and to live and work from that place. As Hebrews says, the rest of God remains available for God's people. And Jesus has brought it closer to us, into our hearts, in a way that Moses and his law never could. So all that remains for us now is to listen and to enter, to say yes, to rest in God. So I say, my friends, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts.